Oh yes, hello people, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Harold McGee, author and food expert, and we are talking about how smells work. Our sense of smells sits at the front of our daily experience, and yet our understanding of what smells are and how they're processed is almost non-existent, or at least mine was before this episode. So today, expect to learn why smell might be the oldest of our senses, how our brains combine what hits our nose to create sensations, whether smell will be the new frontier for the entertainment industry, what an opera singer smells like, and much more. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by brand new sponsor, Michael Hanna. Michael Hanna are a homegrown British toiletries company with a focus on making you smell as good as you feel. This is done not only through natural, organic and quality ingredients, being sulfate-free with essential oils known to relieve stress, boost your mood, help with anxiety and help with mental health, but also they're an official partner of Calm and £2.50 at least of every product sold goes to the campaign against living miserably. Their goal is to deliver a positive message whilst delivering quality products to your door. Being an independent brand means that they can offer a quality product with zero compromise. They don't have shareholders to worry about. They don't have to listen to accountants. They are free to give the absolute best quality that they can. They're also cruelty-free, so it means that if you care about bunny rabbits, you do not have to worry. They also care about our mental health, which is why they are an official partner of Calm, and they are dedicated to trying to raise awareness for mental health. Mental health is a hugely passionate topic of mine, and I'm very, very happy to be assisting the guys and working with them. You also get 25% off all products throughout December. So if you are yet to buy someone a Christmas present, getting them some toiletries that raise awareness for mental health and smell great is the perfect solution. Head to michaelhanna.co.uk and use the code MW25 for 25% off absolutely everything. Make one of your purchases support a charity that we all care about michaelhanna.co.uk and the code MW25 for 25% off. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Manscaped, precision engineered tools for your family jewels. You can even use it in collaboration with, with Michael Hanna, you know, you could smell great and be a little bit, a little bit less hairy. Manscaped have just launched their brand new Lawnmower 3.0, the greatest ball and body hair trimmer ever created, featuring a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, a 90-minute battery so that you can take a longer shave, waterproof technology which allows you to groom in the shower, and an LED light which illuminates your private areas for a closer and more precise trim. Also... You get 20% off and free shipping with the code Modern Wisdom. Another fantastic Christmas opportunity. Just it, don't take it as a hint. If you receive it, it's not a hint that you're too hairy. It's just a way to facilitate you being less hairy. I think I think that's the nicest way to put it. But yes, you cannot use your old shaver. This is the year. 2021 is the year of not using an old electric trimmer for the most sensitive part of your body and the lawnmower 3.0 is the solution to that with a 7000 rpm motor that has quiet stroke technology so you can be shaving while everyone else is asleep and no one will know head to manscaped.com and enter the code modern wisdom for 20 percent off and free shipping and it will be delivered in time for christmas head to manscaped.com code modern wisdom for 20 percent off and free shipping Whew. 
But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Harold McGee. What have you spent the last few years researching? <laughs> smell, and more particularly smells. So uh, things in the world that we uh, encounter and experience every day um, that we generally don't pay a lot of attention to and that turn out to be really, really, well, at least interesting enough to me to spend 10 years on it. <laughs> wow. I mean, interesting enough to write, everyone who's watching on YouTube is going to be able to see the size of this tome here. Uh, I also have to admit, I, I ruptured my Achilles a couple of months ago, and this is the only book that was high enough to work as a step for when I also <laughs> needed to do some of my exercises. Um, so also, it's got, it's got multiple uses. Uh, let's, let's start then. Let's define <laughs> our terms. What is a smell? So a smell is a perception that we human beings have that's actually generated in our brains but it is stimulated by molecules in the world, uh, little bits of the things around us. So in that sense, smell is uh, the most direct contact we have with the world because sight is a matter of you know, reflected light waves and hearing is pressure waves in the air. Uh, it's smell that actually gives us information about the particular things themselves. And we detect them by um, noticing molecules of theirs that are small enough to escape those things and fly through the air so that we can inhale them. And when we inhale them, they interact with a, a receptor in the nose. Uh, the receptor then reports that it's received something from the outside world to the brain, and then the brain deals with that. It uh, it turns that information uh, into a perception, but not just based on that one thing alone. It's based on uh, all the other information it's getting at the same time and our database of experience. And then it gives us a, an interpretation of what it is that we've encountered where does a smell manifest? Because a touch manifests where, where it on, on my body is affecting the object, a taste manifests on my tongue. How, how does a smell make the sensation of a smell? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, it turns out that because the brain is trying to integrate all this different information, it's um, uh, kind of leading us to, um, how should we say, uh, ascribe the smell to the thing, something around us. You know, it, we're detecting it in our nose right here, but we don't generally think of smells as. I don't feel it in my nose. There. Yeah. 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 And it, it's really interesting what happens when we eat something because uh, smell is a very important aspect of flavor, really the dominant aspect of uh, the flavors of foods. And uh, what's happening when we detect the smell from food is that or we could call it aroma, nicer, nicer term for foods. Um, when we have something in our mouth, uh, when we exhale, uh, air passes from the mouth through the nose out. And it's uh, that route that gives us the impression of what's in our mouth. And uh, it turns out that 
you know, when we think about the flavor of food, we think of the flavor being in our mouth uh, because that's where the food is. But in fact, the smell is being detected up here. So the brain kind of uh, relocates it to the place where that the action is. And uh, that's why we think that the, the smell is there rather than there. Can you impact the taste of something by affecting your breathing technique then? Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, it, I mean, lots of different things to say about that. But, you know, one of them is uh, simply um, how how much of those molecules are uh, introduced into your nose. And that has to do with how close you are to the thing, um, how deeply you breathe in, how often you breathe in. You know, sniffing is a way of, you know, picking something up. You're, you're, you know, there's something out there, but you're not quite sure what it is. So you're sniffing it out. That sniffing is repeated um, intakes of those molecules to give our receptors and brain another chance to figure out what it is. I always noticed when everyone will know this, you put your hand down toward a dog and it, it smells your hand, but it does it in a sort of a, it does that very quick in and out. I'm going to guess that that's what the dogs are trying to do. What's the difference when smelling something between one long inhale and multiple very short inhales? Uh, well, with with one long one, uh, what's going to happen likely is that uh, your receptors will um, not have time to reset. You know, if you keep breathing in the same thing constantly, uh, your brain will actually pay less attention to it because it kind of becomes kind of part of the, the background, you know, the wallpaper of your experience. Uh, whereas if you breathe in and out, the the uh, sensation is going on and off and your brain is able better to pay attention to that and perhaps identify what it is that's uh, that's doing it and by the way animals sniffs are really really short you know they're fractions of a second um, I've I've you know tried to time myself I, I can't do that <laughs> I would look I would pay good money to watch that video of you trying to time your your sniffs <laughs> But it's uh, it, it's fun, you know, it's it's a, a, a sense that we kind of take for granted that we don't really um, exercise. And, you know, it's it's really easy to do. You can do it just sitting right here talking to each other. I mean, one of the things that I write about in the book is the smell of a uh, laptop. You know, if you stick your nose down next to the keys and inhale you'll get the smell of the uh, the circuit boards in there, which are made of particular molecules that are given off. And so it has a very particular smell. Uh, so it's, it's something that uh, that's one of the reasons I loved the last 10 years, even though it was kind of a long haul, is that there's just so much out there to pay attention to that we generally don't. One of the things that I really enjoyed that you said at the beginning was about how it's one of our most direct senses. And you're correct. Like, touch it, smell is kind of like touch if the thing you were touching turned into a volatile and went inside of you yes that's <laughs> it's right little bits of the thing that you're touching getting in you and then you noticing it in a completely different way 
Yeah, and in fact, uh, it's it's really intimate. Um, so that receptor in the nose that's detecting what's out there, in order to make its report to the brain, actually binds to the molecule, grabs onto it. So for a moment, uh, a split second, that's right. That that thing that you're smelling is part of you. And <laughs> that's uh, very that dangerous. Be... When I think of some of the smells that have entered my nose, I don't know if I want to be a part of them. Exactly. Exactly. It, it it's uh, you know it explains perfectly why it is when something doesn't smell so good, we hold our nose. We don't we don't allow ourselves to take it in because we have this kind of sense that it's becoming too too close to our insides. <laughs> why can we detect smells? Uh, we can detect smells mainly because our uh, animal ancestors uh, are able to do that and uh, have been able to do that from the earliest uh, forms of life on Earth. And that's because it's really important for living things to know what's around them uh, in order to know, you know, what direction food might be, what direction something dangerous might be. And so uh, chemical sensors, and that's what uh, the sense of smell is, a chemical sense, uh, are uh, is probably the earliest sense that uh, that living things had. No way, even before eyesight. Oh, uh, eyes are really complicated structures. You know, bacteria have chemical senses. Um, things that we uh, think of as being really primitive and not really uh, doing anything except you know going blindly through through the world, hoping to luck out on finding some some food no they they have senses uh systems for detecting molecules and then changing their behavior in order to take advantage of that information and that would be more analogous to smell than it would be to any other sense that's right that's wow. right because it is again latching onto a molecule taste is also a chemical sense um and uh, so you, you could say that uh, these early forms would be a combination of taste and smell. I was looking at, uh, I can't remember what I was learning about, E. coli bacteria living in the gut. And basically they can spin one way and it makes them go in a circle or they can spin the other way and it makes them go straight. And they basically have an <laughs> if this then that function, which is if the... I think that they might be looking for perhaps glucose. If the area that they move to has more glucose, then spin in the direction that makes them go straight. If it doesn't, then spin in the direction that makes them the other way. It's like such a simple, you know, you could write it into a computer code in two minutes. Um, but yeah. that's utilizing the chemical response. That's right. They have to have the receptor for glucose to know that it's out there. Exactly. Got you. So, Smells are created by these little volatiles, tiny little particulates of whatever it is that goes on. And they're made up of something fundamental. I know there's five basic tastes, right? Is, is the same thing true with smell? Uh, no, that's the, the thing that makes smell really special. So it's true that we have these two chemical senses, taste on the tongue and smell in the nose. Taste uh, is limited to about a dozen different sensations. Uh, there are uh, arguments these days about exactly how many, but at least sweet, sour, salty, bitter, savory, then some scientists would add a couple of others, but that's, that's basically it. Um, 
smell, uh, we have around 400 different receptors, which can act um, combinatorially to detect uh, many, many <laughs> different molecules. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And again, scientists argue about exactly how many, but it's, it's uh, way more than we can detect with taste. And um, it's what gives the the uh, gives us the, the the most particular information about the world around us. If smell is so fine, if the the way that we can smell things, the combinations that we can come out with, so much greater than taste, I would I would guess that most people, if I said you've got to lose one of your five senses, most people would lose smell and they'd be upset but they probably wouldn't care that much if you lost taste you'd be a bit more annoyed and then when you get into like the big three that would be a, a real <laughs> drop-off why is it that smell's got such a fine uh, ability to adjust and this combinatory uh, particular formula if it's also something that we feel like we could dispense with quite easily well, uh, it's um, yeah, it's a, uh, an interesting question. And if, in fact, a lot of people are facing that kind of issue these days with COVID yeah, because uh, that's one of the early symptoms of a COVID infection is uh, derangement, uh, either loss or just complete uh, mess up of uh, smell and or taste. And um you know, people respond differently. There are uh, people who lose their sense of taste or smell for a variety of reasons. I myself lost my sense of smell while I was writing this book, <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, a little disturbing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and it it really does depend on how important it has been to you in your life up to that point. And in fact, my experience was that um, there was just no pleasure left in eating. You know, you would satisfy the growling stomach, but then that was it. You know, there was really no point in spending time cooking, no point in going to a restaurant and paying good money because I was just kind of filling this hunger that gave me no no satisfaction um i guess all that no you've got left satisfaction all you've got left is texture right is that it uh well taste also because i didn't lose my sense of taste so i could still get sweetness and bitterness but pungency um uh you know hot pepper is actually a a touch sensation and um uh that is something that you you can still feel and a lot of people will try to compensate for the absence of these other sensations by upping that uh stimulation yeah <laughs> but uh yeah i would i personally would just hate to lose either of them taste taste or smell either one uh you might think the taste might be easier to get rid of because it's only, you know, those four or five different sensations. Um, but people who lose their sense of taste uh, report the same kind of thing. They can still smell foods, but when they eat them, it's the, the brain can no longer make that connection that those smells are in here. So it's, it's more like, you know, eating perfume or something like that. It's not satisfying in the, in the same way. It's not, yeah. not grounded. Yeah, I bet it's not. 
Are there any technologies that are interacting with smells now? Like, are we going to get an entertainment system that kicks some smells out when we're watching a TV program or anything? Well, actually, uh, that that idea has been around for a while. Uh, Smell-O-Vision was uh, an experiment back in the... That was always going to be the name, wasn't it? Anyone that didn't use that name, was they were losing out. (laughs) That's right. And in fact, uh, you know, there's this uh, American film director, John Waters, who does um, interesting kind of offbeat movies, and he did one back in the 1970s that uh, involved a a scratch and sniff card. (laughs) So you walked into the theater uh, and with your ticket, you were given one of these cards and then you were cued by the movie as to when to scratch and sniff. And there were very nice smells and really disgusting smells on that card. Um, And I I actually uh, dug that card up uh, like a year ago. So maybe 30 years after I took it home with me from the movie showing and I scratched and sniffed and those smells were still there. So it's, that's the robust technology. Um, the, the newer idea is to use some kind of digital coding so that you have a, a little box next to your computer and um, it releases some combination of volatile molecules in response to what it, whatever it is you're trying to um, uh, synthesize. Uh, my experience so far has been that it's it's not really very effective. <laughs> the technology's got a way to go. I went on a, uh, I want to call it like Wings of F- Flight or something. It was Disneyland in LA last year. And uh, you go on this big ride and you sort of up in the air and it's one of those ones where the screen is moving and you're pivoting and twisting around with it. But this had, you would be going over the African plains and they were pumping the smell of grass in. And you were flying over uh-huh. the top of the ocean and they were pumping the smell of sea spray in. Uh, and that was yeah. that was pretty cool. It was the sort of thing that stuck in my memory because I think it's so rare that we get, at least from an entertainment perspective, it's so rare that we have our smell manipulated, right? That's right. Uh, people have done uh, uh, operas, uh, smell Smelly operas. operas. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what does an opera man uh, smell like? <laughs> <laughs> but the problem with, with things like operas and plays and concerts, things like that in general, is that you're sitting in a seat which is stationary and they have to blow the the smells at you in, in this you know cavernous uh, room and then get them out of there in time for the next one. And the smells don't do that really easily. You know, the molecules kind of hang around. And so you really have to design uh, an amusement park uh, uh, thing like that with those things in mind. What are some of the tricks that we can play on our physiology with smells? Can we use them to affect us positively? You know, I've seen sleep sprays that you spray on your pillow before you go to bed and there's awakeness this and you know caffeine in a in a smelly bottle that like is there any efficacy to these and are there any other things that we can do to sort of utilize smells to to help us well there are uh uh studies that have shown that particular smells in particular cultures can have 
physiological effects, generally speaking, either relaxing or stimulating. Um, you know, it doesn't really get any more fine grained than that. Um, and it, and it is culture dependent. So it's kind of what you associate those smells with, uh, apparently, I mean, this, it's not an easy thing to study in a, in a systematic way, but generally speaking, it seems that lavender is, uh, a relaxing smell for most people and citrus smells are stimulating, um, uh, which is kind of interesting because they actually share uh, some components. Um, uh, you know, smells are, we, we think of the smell of lavender or the smell of a lemon as being some unitary thing, like molecules of lemon, molecules <laughs> of lavender. Uh, but in fact, uh, what these volatiles are, are um, they're bouquets. They come at us uh, in large numbers and what our brain does is register the the overall bouquet and then interpret that and uh, so it's more like a chord in music uh, rather than particular notes we're sensing the the whole thing and uh, it turns out that lavender and uh, citrus share notes so why they should have divergent uh, effects on people is an interesting question um, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating that so much of what a smell means to us is based on our history with it, our interpretation of it. Even when we think about what smells nice and what smells bad, like if you think sort of rotting meat at one end and fresh grass at the other, there's a reason for that, right? That it's become embedded in us. Our evolutionary ancestors would have found it advantageous to know that that meat is off and this grass, grass is fresh and therefore the effect that it has on us. And then obviously you can have that uh, sort of more epigenetically within your lifetime where you're thinking, okay, I, I remember mum used to put lavender on my pillow when I was sick as a kid, therefore I really like lavender. I love Olbass mm -hmm. oil like, because that was the thing that I had on the radiator when I was ill. So I, I've got it on the radiator now. I'm still 32 years old, a massive child. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's fascinating that the smell itself kind of is just a thing and we then run forward with that a lot further. We interpret it. It becomes this subjective, very narrative, personified uh, interpretation of what that means. Exactly. Um, and it's kind of interesting. You know, you, it, it does seem to make sense evolutionarily that we know the difference between rotting meat and, uh, and fresh fruit, for example. On the other hand, it also turns out that in human development, there are several years uh, in kind of toddler, uh, the toddler era, where we human beings are totally neutral when it comes to uh, to smells or or much more neutral than adults are. And, you know, you can see this with little children who are sticking their hands into things that aren't such a good thing to stick our hands in <laughs> uh, because they don't have the same um, revulsion, automatic revulsion that adults do. And it's, it's unclear, you know, why this is exactly. I mean, it's important for developing animals to, you know, have a broad enough um, tolerance for things that they can actually feed themselves and, and thrive. Um, on the other hand, it's also important to be able to dis distinguish among uh, poisonous things and not so poisonous things. So why it is that there's this window of um, 
flexibility. Uh, <clears throat> uh, why it is there's this window of flexibility is is still unclear. Yeah, that is interesting. What are some of the most unique smells that you experienced? Ah, that's uh, that's a tough one. Um, it, I, I really didn't know much perfume world before I started writing about uh, smells. You know, food and drink has been my thing for decades. This was kind of out of that. Um, but uh, that just ended up becoming really fascinating to me. And there are particular incense woods that are also used in perfumery that are just uh, intoxicating. You know, if you, um, uh, I, I, I went to Japan a few years ago and was indoctrinated in this practice they have called, um, uh, the English translation is incense listening. So rather than just lighting a stick in your room and, and just kind of floating on that, you actually uh, sit down and focus on a particular little bit of incense wood and its smells and think about it and then take another little bit of a different wood and think about it, really pay attention to what the qualities are. So it's like, uh, you know, learning to taste wine or something like that. And um, a couple of those woods were just, you know, they, they had to pull me away from the, <laughs> the table. They were just so, so beautiful and um, kind of hard to describe because they're, um, you know, it's uh, like trying to describe a lemon. You know, a lemon is lemony. And these incense woods just had this character that, that was something I had never experienced before and that was just really rich and just kept. It kept you wanting to smell more because there seemed to be layer on layer on layer. Can you remember the name of them if people want to try and buy them online? Oh yeah, uh, uh, it's the the one I particularly love has several different names. So it's one is agar wood, a g a r wood. Uh, it's sometimes also known as oud, which is o u d. Uh, and, uh, another couple of names that are escaping me at the moment, but, but either of those will, will get you there. Got you. And it's, it's really interesting stuff. It's, um, it's produced by, uh, a Southeast Asian tree that has become infected by a fungus. And in response to that infection, it generates this resin to defend itself uh, and it's that resin that gives it that that amazing aroma. It's so crazy how the downstream effects of things uh, and end up to this combination. But as you say, if we've got 400 different dials on the mixing desk that we can play around with, and each combination of those comes out differently, it, it's not surprising that you might get odd results from something that you were you wouldn't have thought of. What animal smells did you look at? Ah. Um... Uh, as many as I could think of and find. Uh, so actually in the in the incense and perfume world, that again was something that came as a surprise to me. Uh, we might think that animal smells are generally not that pleasant <laughs> compared to woods and flowers and fruits and things like that. Uh, but it turns out that animal materials are really important in perfumery. And they're uh, among the most valuable ingredients there are for perfumery. One of them, uh, the, the one that I think has the most interesting backstory is ambergris. Uh, 
or uh, ambergris. Uh, so this is uh, a material that comes from the uh, lower digestive tract of the sperm whale. <laughs> I want to know who the first guy is that was that thought that sperm whale that we just caught over there. Anyone has anyone sniffed its lower digestive tract recently? Because I, I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain, boys. If we bottle that, we've got a million pound business there. <laughs> well, we do have uh, over here this this uh, classic novel, Moby Dick about the whaling industry. There's a lot about ambergris in, in Moby Dick. Uh, but it, it wouldn't have been uh, quite the scenario you propose uh, because what would happen is that the, the whales swimming in the ocean would die. Uh, their carcasses would, would come apart and these bits would end up being washed up on the beach. Uh, or on the shore, all over, all around the world. And in fact, this is still the way that most ambergris is, is found, is just by chance, people walking on the beach and coming across a, a lump, which looks like nothing in particular. It's kind of hard to describe, but it's not fishy the way you would expect. Uh, it's flowery and, um, uh, yeah, just kind of transcendent smelling but it came from the lower digestive system of a sperm whale. <laughs> <laughs> what other animal stuff did you look at? Uh, well, let's see. I uh, asked the question, why does uh, excrement smell the way it does? And what information might that give us about <laughs> what's going on? And uh, that turns out to be, uh, at least if you're willing to think about things like that, pretty interesting because, you know, we've discovered in the last 10 years that we have this microbiome uh, in our guts that are whose uh, number of cells uh, outnumber human cells in our own body. And uh, the, the, this collection of microbes has a tremendous effect on our health, on our digestion, on just uh, all, all aspects of our lives, pretty much. And it turns out that uh, because excrement is coming from their home, uh, it carries the, the signatures of the microbes that are in there and what it is they're up to. And so there are particular, uh, how shall we say, uh, particular excremental bouquets that uh, indicate that things are working pretty well and others that indicate that, um, that there are bacteria in there making things that are not as good for us as, as the other microbes. So the closer that that smell comes to the smell of, um, uh, newborn babies poop, uh, the better. And the more, the, the more sulfurous and, um, just offensive it is, the more it indicates that, uh, in fact, we're, uh, feeding the, the bacteria that tend not to be good for us. And so we might want to switch to a, a diet that gives us something more like what the, what the baby gives us. Switching back to that, our smells or what, how we interpret smells are narrative personifications. They're also uh, evolutionary indicators of what's going on. Presumably that's adaptive that, 
we wouldn't have been disgusted or concerned or felt made to feel sick by excrement, potentially ours, which didn't have this stuff in. Because there's no real difference. It's not like one smell is worse objectively and one smell is better objectively. It's how we interpret those, right? And the signal that that gives off. Exactly, yeah. And in fact, there are uh, examples that I give in the book of creatures that in fact uh, consume excrement. Uh, and some of them consume their own. So the gorilla, which is a, a close relative of ours, um, has been observed many, many times uh, uh, catching the excrement as it comes out and bringing it up and smelling it and enjoying it and then having some. So... <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many people opened this podcast today and thought that they would hear the word excremental bouquet and then imagine imagine a huge gorilla uh sniffing its own poop yeah yeah well this is this is the world that you have been in for the last decade harold so who, who are we to complain about it what about plants what did you learn about the smells that plants give off well uh so if you think about the the general contrast between animal smells and plant smells animal smells we generally find not so pleasant. Plant smells we generally find very pleasant. Um, uh, flowers, for example, and fruits. And uh, you mentioned the smell of freshly cut grass. All very, very pleasant. Uh, and it turns out that um, one of the main differences between plants and animals is that the smells of animals are essentially the smells of uh, the breakdown of our tissues, either... Uh, naturally, because uh, metabolism involves breakdown as well as building things up, and because the microbes are living off of us, and so uh, their waste products are also ours. Um, in the case of plants, most of the smells are actually created. They're, they're not breakdown products. They're, they're created by the plants, um, synthesized by the plants for very specific purposes, and they're larger molecules. They're, they're not the, the small ones that make um, uh, animal smells uh, less pleasant. They're large, complicated molecules. And there does seem to be evidence that um, the larger and more complicated a molecule is, the more likely we are to find it pleasant. And that kind of makes sense because it indicates not decay, not breakdown, um, but in fact, something being created, something being synthesized, and so a potential source of uh, food for us. So uh, plants make thousands upon thousands of different um, uh, molecules that we find pleasant. The, the interesting thing uh, 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 kind of evolutionarily is that those smells are there not to attract animals for the most part, but to repel them not to attract other living creatures, but to ward them off. They're, they're a form of chemical warfare. And that's because unlike animals, plants are stuck in one place. They can't run away. So they have to do something to discourage uh, animals that can move around from, from chomping on them. And many of the things that we enjoy in herbs and spices and even flowers are there to repel animals and, and prevent them from uh, consuming the plant. 
It feels like we have quite an emotional attachment to a lot of different smells, but we don't have that necessarily with some of our other senses, specifically not with sight or probably quite as much with sound. I wonder how different people would live their lives if I've been a big champion of people trying to spend as much time in nature as possible, reconnect with the grandeur of the cosmos by looking up at the night sky and making yourself feel insignificant and things like that. But the detachment from the the narrative, if we were able to smell the smell of the night sky, the effect that that has through our eyes, I feel like that would be much more pungent. I feel like it would be a very, very strong sensation. Do you, do you get what I mean? That it's much more, the, what is good for us in terms of what we view and what is good for us in terms of what we smell are actually much more messy on the uh, on sight, despite the fact that of 14 million sense cells we have in our body, 11 million of them are discriminated towards vision mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i just think it, it, it's really interesting it would be an interesting world in which we attach that same narrative perhaps and the same level of emotion uh, and buy-in to sight and the things that we saw yeah so uh it, it a couple of things are going on one is that um the way the brain is wired uh the sense of smell goes much more uh, directly to the emotional centers of the brain than the other senses do. And that may have to do with the fact that the, the chemical senses are as primitive as they are, and therefore we're kind of there in the brain um, long before we, we had good vision or, or hearing. Yeah, yeah. And so they, they go much more directly to the parts of the brain that would make that kind of um, impression upon us. The other thing is that, uh, and I haven't seen scientists talk about this, but I think it's important. Uh, with vision, we're, it's kind of on all the time, right? We're, we're taking in uh, visual information constantly, unless we sleep or something like that. Whereas with the sense of smell, it's much easier even though we're breathing regularly, it's much easier to ignore it. You know, I mean, we're sitting now talking with each other. I don't have a particular sense for the smells around me at the moment because I've kind of adapted to this room. It's brain has kind of tuned them out because it's a constant. Whereas my vision is working because I'm, you know, making eye contact with you and getting information from, uh, from the screen. So I think, uh, Smell is much more episodic, and therefore it's maybe easier to um, uh, to anchor a particular experience in it because it's it's not as continuous as vision is. I think that's a really really good point. You talking of nature and sort of the earth at large. You looked at the smell of land and waters sort of on mass as well. What what did you learn there? Well, uh, in the case of the land. Um, it, yeah, it took me down a, a rabbit hole I never expected because you, you then, it, in order to ask why the land smells the way it does, you have to know what the land is. And the land is a really complicated thing that, that didn't exist, uh, hasn't existed forever. It was created by plants over the course of, uh, you know, eons and eons of time. And the smell of fresh dug soil, which is so evocative so again refreshing and so on is um like the smells of plants uh in general uh 
a molecule that's generated by living things in the soil. And at the moment, we actually don't know why that particular molecule is created. The, the dominant smell of, the, uh, of fresh soil is a molecule called geosmin. Um, and it's generated by a handful of uh, bacteria that live in the soil. Um, we don't quite understand why, because it's not toxic. Uh, it's not, you know, something to kill other bacteria or to um, ward off other creatures. It might be a signal to other bacteria that, you know, I'm here and, you know, give me some space. Or I'm here and come on over so that we can exchange genetic <laughs> material. Uh, it's it's not known. Um, so, uh, and, and then there's the smell of stones. Um, uh, you might have heard of something called petrichor, which is a, a favorite term of people who are uh, interested in perfumes, fragrances, but also just... Uh, the smells of the world. That's supposedly the smell of rain on uh, stone. So, you know, the the smell of the sidewalk after a couple of hot days, and then all of a sudden you get this burst of aroma. Um, and it turns out that that smell is actually the liberation from that surface of all the stuff that's been flying around in the air for the last couple of days. So it's really not anything to do with the stone which is what the the name suggests it's more the smell of that place suddenly concentrated and and brought up for you to inhale so i think it should be called gaia icor not petricor uh -huh. gaia because it's the it's the world it's the planet that uh that we're smelling in that moment Presumably that means that Petricor or Gaia Icor would be different on rocks in the middle of the Saharan plains as they would be in New York, as they would be in Japan, as they would be in wherever. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it depends completely on, on what's around. And in the case of something like the Sahara, you know, uh, those volatiles may have been collecting for hundreds of years before they're liberated. And uh, I, I think there's something to be said for, you know, taking samples from a place like the Sahara and artificially wetting them and collecting the volatiles that come off and getting some idea perhaps of the, uh, of what's going, what's been going on, what has been living in that area uh, over the last however long it had been since the, the previous rain. I remember reading about bloodhounds and the fact that they can de detect, is it like one part in a billion or one part in a trillion or something of, of particular volatiles? Have we got any equivalent with humans? Is there some humans with ridiculously overpowered senses of smell? <laughs> well, actually, we are able to detect some things at parts per billion also. Um, in fact, geosmin is an example of that, um, and there, there are several others. We, are, um, we can be very sensitive to particular molecules, and uh, the people who work on the senses of taste and smell in human beings have been at great pains over the last few decades to point out that this idea that bloodhounds are better than us at smelling is not really true. Um, or at least it needs to be uh, put into context because bloodhounds 
spend their lives right next to the ground. And uh, so they're very good at picking up things that are going on right next to the ground. If you give them a bottle of Burgundy or of uh, uh, an English uh, sparkling wine and ask them to you know, distinguish one from another, they're not so good at that. <laughs> but we are. Professional wine tasters can taste a sip of something and, and narrow it down to a very particular year and place and producer and method of production and all that kind of thing. So we have um, uh, the same basic set of receptors, fewer of them, but the same basic set of receptors as uh, other animals do. We have way more processing power to make sense of what it is that we're um, smelling. And so just to reduce smell to, um, you know, how sensitive your nose is to a particular thing uh, just does uh, an injustice to the the amazing powers that humans have to, to make use of that information. Are there smell connoisseurs out there, like sommeliers of smell, like s- <laughs> smell-eliers? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, but I think it's a great idea. I think you may just have coined a term. Fine, fine. Every, anyone that wants to use that, you need to pay me money. Um, another thing that I was really fascinated by was the fact that you had like industrial smells in there as well, burning and industry, charcoal, stuff like that. And obviously that's something that we probably wouldn't have been very accustomed to. I don't imagine that a volcano goes off all that often and that we get the opportunity to, to smell it. So that must be a unique thing to study. Well, except that, you know, human beings, uh, well, first of all, fire has been an important aspect of um, life on Earth for like half a million, uh, half a billion years. You know, long, uh, once there were enough plants on the planet to generate enough oxygen for a continuous burning to, to take place, there has been a fire, which can be ignited by lightning and you know, all kinds of natural things. And then when it comes to human beings, for probably on the order of a million years, uh, we've been really dependent on fire for all kinds of things. Um, so it's, it's something that we are, um, uh, even biologically, very well uh, acquainted with. And um, and sensitivity to those smells would have been important even before we controlled fire, because in order to, you know, escape a fire or to know that one is nearby without being able to see it, we had to be pretty sensitive to and aware of those particular molecules. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I was considering this yesterday when I was reading the book. Do you ever think back to times in? prehistoric history and think about what it would have smelled like so uh, i was reading about how in the time of the dinosaurs there weren't actually any plants it was all sort of ferns it was this crumpled ground of ferns and then if you were to go back further to single-celled prokaryotic eukaryotic life it would be very sulfurous right it must be it would be interesting to be able to take samples of that and actually work out what the earth smelled like the place that we walk but just in a time that we weren't Yes. Well, so uh, in one of the early chapters of the book, I, I tried to do that. So I, I asked the question, what was the early Earth like and when did it become more like what it is now? And it really did depend on the invention in, first in microbes and then uh, plants took it over, uh, the invention of photosynthesis, 
which generates oxygen. Before there was uh, an excess of oxygen in the atmosphere, everything would have smelled sulfurous. It would have been, you know, hydrogen sulfide and and uh, um, uh, uh, blanking out, uh, yeah, the the methane thiols and things that that we immediately recognize as being um, uh, something to to be careful about. Now, hydrogen sulfide is important, an important component, the main component in the smell of hard cooked eggs. So it's not always bad, <laughs> but you know, if that same eggy smell were magnified by a hundredfold, then you wouldn't be happy. And that's the kind of smell that comes out of volcanoes and hot springs and, and so on. Uh, and that's what the world in general would have smelled like before uh, we had enough oxygen in the air to oxidize those molecules and get rid of them. How has the study of smell, obviously your background is majority of the in food up until now, how has your learnings from smell impacted your view of food? Or are you cooking in different ways? Have you changed up anything to do with the sort of tastes that you put into your foods to manipulate this? Not really. Um, uh, I uh, I just pay more attention. I guess that's the the way to put it. And you know, when something doesn't smell quite right, instead of just pushing it away and saying this is not very nice, I actually take more of it to try to figure out, you know, what's what's going on. What what is it that uh, doesn't smell so nice, and how might it have been created? You know, what 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 went wrong <laughs> in the cooking process. Um, and, and it is true that I, I do probably, um, uh, cook with more different ingredients nowadays than I used to, because I've become interested in just the diversity of, uh, aromas that, that different natural materials have. And I do things like, um, I've, I now have tea bushes in my backyard and I make tea. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, which, by the way, I rec uh, recommend to just about anyone because it turns out that the tea bush, even though we think of it as a you know an Asian exotic sort of thing, it's very hardy and it it can take frosts no problem. And uh, to me, it's just the most amazing uh, transformation. You pluck a few young leaves from a tea plant and smell them, and they smell like green leaves, and you let them sit for a couple of hours or you just rub them a little bit and let them sit for 10 minutes to speed things up and then smell them and they're like flowers uh and it's you know all you've done is pick them or rub them it's just uh, an incredible thing that these these leaves are engineered to be able to do and again it's a it's a defensive reaction there's a problem so let's ramp up these molecules that help defend us but we find them delicious uh so that would probably to some common predator of that particular plant would actually be a little bit disgusting uh, it would be off-putting to a predator and it's also many of these molecules in tea in particular are also signals so there's a signal from the leaf that has been damaged to the rest of the plant to say, ramp up your defenses, boys, because we've got a problem up here. Ah, that's really interesting. It's also a signal that it needs a little bit of milk and two sugars, isn't it? Um, moving, <laughs> moving forward, looking to the future, are we going to 
see sense scientists coming up with anything new? Are there any sort of exciting areas in the world of sense science? Oh yeah, uh, on all uh, on all levels. So we've, we're getting better and better at detecting the volatile molecules that are out there in the world in tiny, tiny quantities um, and uh, identifying them so that we know what it is that we're smelling and get some idea of their backstory, what, what it is that those molecules are doing there. So now you can, for example, um, put a little bubble around a flower in the jungle in South America and in an hour or so extract enough of its aroma that you can then take it back to a lab and identify all those different molecules. It's, it's amazing. Um, and then on the human side, we're learning more and more every year about the, the circuitry that's involved in our perception of smells and then our interpretation. How it is that our brain takes that information and turns it into a, a conscious perception on our part. So it's very exciting times. I like it. Uh, Harold, Nosedive, a field guide to the word smells, will be in the show notes below. Any other things that people should go and check out? Any places you want to send them? Uh, uh, well, I have a website, and I uh, write occasionally uh, updates and, and you know talk about uh, other related things as well as food and the connection of all this to food and cooking. So that would be a place to start. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, you can receive a 25% discount on all mindful toiletries from shampoos to shower gels at michaelhanna.co.uk and use the code MW25 for 25% off plus £2.50 at least from every order will go to the Campaign Against Living Miserably charity. And you can get 20% discount plus free shipping on your lawnmower 3.0 at manscaped.com Use the code MODERNWISDOM for that 20% discount and free shipping and make someone a little bit less hairy this Christmas. Peace.